With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. At a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Today is our latest episode of Civil Discourse hosted by Todd Furness. I'm really excited to have our guest today. So Peter Brodsky, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Peter, I I want to kind of walk through a little bit about your background. I like to kind of set this up from a context perspective, and uh, and see how your interest in developing Redbird, one of the many things you do, uh, started to take form. You you know grew up and you went to a very nice school up in the Northeast. Some folks call it Yale, uh, and then somehow you ended up in investment banking and and then private equity. Walk us through that journey just a little bit. Uh, well, I, uh, I I grew up in New York City and uh, was was very fortunate to uh, grow up in a household with you know two two college ed- educated parents and uh, and and a, a corporate attorney as a father uh, who provided a great life for me. I went to a great high school and and was lucky to to get into Yale. Although I will say that people who didn't go to Yale had a lot more fun in college than I did. <laughs> um, and I was a I was a Russian lit major. I really just wanted to major in something that I found interesting. I didn't wasn't really thinking much about my future career. Um, I figured that would fall into place. And after uh, after I graduated from college in 1992, I lived in Russia for a year, which was a fascinating time to live there. It was right after the Soviet Union had ended. And the all of the effects of of uh, Gorbachev's opening of society were were in full effect, and I really wanted at the time to do something that used my Russian language skills. I loved being over there. I met a lot of great people, and the thing I was most interested in was business. And I met an investment banker over there who was doing a lot of business in Russia, and he told me that the way business in, was done in Russia was so effed up, as he put it, uh, though he didn't say F, that I better go home, quote, to learn how to do it right before you come back here and learn how to do it wrong. There was a lot of corruption at that time in Russia. And so I took his advice. I came I came home to New York. I got a job at an investment banking training program that I did for two years where they really taught me a ton of what I'd need to know in a, for a career in finance. And at the end of two years, I really didn't want to go back to Russia anymore. At that point, it was very chaotic there. There was hyperinflation. It would become a less safe place. And I realized that, you know, being young and single and in your 20s in the US was pretty fun. And so I wanted to stay in the US. I didn't want to stay in banking. And I ended up getting a job in Dallas at a private equity firm. So I moved here in 1995 at the age of, uh, of 24. And uh, and here I've been. And you started grinding out. I can imagine your you know your work week was pretty intense, as all self-respecting analysts were at the time, and and still continue to be. And 
Uh, you worked for some pretty prominent people here in town, but then you went off and, and branched out and left that to do other things. I did. I mean, th- there was a long time before I left and branched out. I went there in 1995 uh, and I was working hard when I started dating my wife. I used to uh, you know, go over to her house at three in the morning to say goodnight when I was done with work. She couldn't figure out why why anyone worked till three in the morning. And I, she she learned that that's what you do in private equity. And I stayed there for 15 years. Uh, I didn't leave that firm until uh, until the end of 2010 when I was turning 40. And then I continued in private equity, doing smaller deals with friends and some family offices for a few years. But by that time, I had gotten very much more involved civically in the city of Dallas. I realized, hey, I've lived here for 15, you know, and up to 20, you know, then 20 years. I better, I better get involved. I I'm not a New Yorker anymore. I'm a I'm a Dallasite. I'm a Texan, and I want to be involved in the community I live in. And I had gotten really interested in in Southern Dallas, uh, just learning about why it was so underdeveloped, how that had happened, why that had happened, what were the opportunities, and that's when I became interested in in the Redbird project because I was really. I was really trying to make an investment that would be that would be civically uh, uplifting and also profitable. And Southern Dallas is a great place to do that. So before we get there, what what sort of catalyzed your interest in Southern Dallas? Was it KIPS or was it and talk a little about some of the civic organizations you got involved with? Yeah. So so the, the key turning point for me was was with a program called Leadership Dallas, which is a program sponsored by the Dallas Regional Chamber of Commerce. Every year, 50 you know, younger leaders of the city or aspiring leaders of the city will get together. We got together once a month for nine months and spent that day each month learning about a different part of the city. It's a fantastic opportunity to learn about the community we live in. And it was there that I uh, discovered that there was this whole other half of the city that I had never been to, never been exposed to, had really been sort of taught to disregard, but that I found to be full of opportunity and really not to match the stereotypes that I had been hearing about it. And so first I got involved civically. I was very involved. I got very involved with a charter school group that was focused on Southern Dallas called KIPP for the Knowledge is Power program, which is part of a national network of high-performing public charter schools. So when I got involved in 2010, we had one school in South Oak Cliff. Uh, Today, this morning, I went to the ribbon cutting for our eighth school, uh, which is a high school serving the Pleasant Grove community, although actually located in Balt Springs. And we we now educate over 3,000 kids with a really high quality public uh, free education. So I got, you know, I'm very passionate about that. And I learned a lot about Southern Dallas through that. And then I've gone on to do a series of other civic projects in Southern Dallas that have only confirmed and 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 affirmed the interest I have in the area and and the and the deep feeling that it's an area that is misunderstood and and really de- deeply underestimated by the rest of Dallas because of a pretty ugly racial history that that our city has that caused it to to become so underdeveloped. Leadership Dallas kind of took you through some paces that then allowed you to have some visibility into an area you were previously unfamiliar with that mm-hmm. then took root in you somehow. It really, is that something that just you'd always been interested in and being a bit more civically oriented or was that something that your family had led you to or how were you inspired when your history inspired that? You know, my, my parents, my father in particular, I would say is very politically active. I, I wouldn't say that my, uh, my upbringing taught me it, they, they were very politically active. They're civically minded. They they care deeply about society, but I don't think they, they they weren't like constantly volunteering to be on a million boards. I think that the reason why it t- has taken such deep root in me is something that I'm just very lucky to have been born with, which is that I feel very lucky. You know, I, I had a my my grandfather was a very very successful economist. 
an investor. And I once asked him, what's the key to your success? And he went through this whole litany of things in his life that had led to his success. It started with, I was born a white male in 1919 um, to a wealthy family. I was given a great education. I was sent to a great college and, and it was paid for. I graduated from college and I served in the war. And then, you know, and then I was, you know, basically coming of age as an adult in the 1950s when the economy was booming. And he was an investor, an economist. And he said, if I was at the height of my career in 1981 when the stock market started to take off on this epic bull run. And he basically said every single thing that he attributed his success to had nothing to do with him. And this guy was a brilliant, brilliant man. He could easily have said, well, I worked really hard and I'm smart and I, you know, what and, and attributed it all to himself and his own attributes, but he attributed everything to the circumstances of his life. And that really stuck with me. And I feel the same way. I feel like I've been given so much in my life and I've made the most of the opportunities that I have been given, but I've been given a lot of opportunities. And what sticks with me when I am interacting with people who, who aren't as lucky is a sense of total unfairness that they have not been given the same opportunities. And so that's what really drives me with Kip. It would drive, it's what drives me in, in some of the work I do on homelessness. And it's what drives me on Redbird because Redbird is a community where there are not a lot of opportunities that are provided for people to take advantage of. And it's just grossly unfair. One of the things that really hit me hard as I was kind of preparing for today's conversation was your own humility in what you're doing. I think you like to give uh, attention and, and uh, accolades and support to others in the context of whatever your uh, proposition you're advancing is. You know, like the great old saying, it's it which you seem to manifest, which is it's amazing what you can get accomplished when you don't mind who takes credit for it. And, and that's true. And look, I, I really appreciate that. My wife will tell you that I have a very healthy ego and 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 a strain of arrogance. But I do genuinely believe that the contributions that other people make are no less important than the contributions that I that I try to make and that every person is is of equal value. To the extent there's hubris involved, I would submit it's that you're looking at a problem, whatever it is, education, homelessness, whatever it is. And you're saying, hey, wait a minute, I think there's a better way to solve the problem. And I want to put some shoulder into figuring out what that better way is. And so the hubris, I guess, would be to say, hey, if I put my shoulder in this, I think maybe we can come up with a better idea. I don't think that's such a bad thing. It's because you're tackling the problems that society needs tackling. Well, I appreciate that. Next time I'm in an argument with my wife, I'm going to call you up and put you on the phone. <laughs> Very no, good. I, look, I, I, I think that's true. I, 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 um, I enjoy tackling problems and I am arrogant enough to think that I can uh, address them. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. But, but I definitely, I go in feeling me, pretty confident. Yeah, I mean, what, what comes across to me is that you believe that your contribution can help produce a better outcome. And I, I applaud that. So Thank you. What, what occurs to me also is that one of the things that you seem to have unpacked in certain situations is that different business models have different strengths and weaknesses. There's a business model around philanthropy. There's a business model around investing. There's a business model around for-profit companies. There's a business model for government. And each one of those can be responsible for producing good or bad outcomes. There's not a normative value in, that's entrenched in the business model itself, but rather it, it may be misapplied in certain instances. So for example, a traditional mindset I submit around investing in Redbird, because you certainly had investors chopped, you had deep competence in investing 
for over 20 years before you got to Redbird. So you weren't, you didn't fly into this idea and say, Hey, I've got an idea, you know, I'm going to do it differently. You had, you know, a lot of roots and, and, and a lot of anchoring in fundamentals. And then you came in and said, Hey, wait a minute. I, the investor have to look at Redbird differently in order to solve the problem. And a pure returns focused mentality would not have worked because you're, your timeline would have been different, right? So this is, forgive me for, for saying this, I, I perceive right there only that you looked at this as an intergenerational thing. This isn't something you're going to make a buck on in, you know, in, in a three to five year uh, investment period, but rather something that's going to take longer, but the fruits of which will affect generations to come. So let me, let me kind of pause there and see if I've got it, at least gotten it, gotten it directionally correct. Um, directionally. So, so here's what I'd say. This is a purely for-profit investment. The one nod, I'd say, to, to the fact that it also has a civic goal it is, the, is the time period. Um, this cannot be done in three to five years. I hope it's not intergenerational. I mean, I, 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 hope, I hope that within my lifetime, there's a tangible return. Um, no, I, I meant that the impact will be intergenerational. The, well, abs- I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. You know, I, I had never done a commercial real estate transaction or investment before Redbird. And I think that actually was a big help uh, because I wasn't, wasn't burdened with the conventional wisdom about how do you make money in underserved communities there's a very clear and well-worn business model for real estate investing in underserved communities. And that is put in a certain type of amenity. It's a dollar store. It's a payday lending. It's a pawn shop. It's a convenience store. It's a, it, it's a, a, a shoe store, sneakers put in a certain type of amenity that often conforms to stereotypes, build a very inexpensive building and sweep as much cash out of it as you can, as quickly as you can. And people have made a lot of money doing that, but it's so negative for the community and it is so disrespectful and devaluing of the people who live in that community. And our business model is the exact opposite. And I think it will prove to be more profitable in the long run, which is recognize the value of the people who live in that community, recognize their significant purchasing power if they are provided with the amenities that they want, and build something really high quality that people will appreciate. And, and ultimately, it'll be more of a thriving community. And so that's really what we're trying to do. Um, and, and it's working. So like I said, you, you took a different view about the business model and you changed it to, to conform to what you envisioned. How did you reach that conclusion? T- tell me how you, because I got to believe that you went through 20 steps and 20 brick walls before you got there, at least. I mean, you, you didn't just kind of wake up and said, now that I've figured out I'm going to go invest in Redbird, you know, I'm going to change the business model and here's how it's going to work. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, the original idea is still the same North Star, which is high quality. The original idea came about because I was spending a lot of time in Southern Dallas I was meeting a lot of people from various communities in Southern Dallas. And yes, there's a lot of poverty in Southern Dallas, but there's also a lot of solidly middle class and upper middle class people who live in Southern Dallas and they don't have anywhere good to spend their money. So I saw it firsthand because I was spending a lot of time in Southern Dallas and I wanted to go get a salad for lunch and I couldn't get a salad anywhere. It started with a very simple idea that this was a misunderstood marketplace and there was a supply demand imbalance. There was a sub, there was a demand for high quality amenities and there was a and there was no supply. 
What has evolved over the last seven years, because we have hit brick walls, is what the definition of amenity is. It started out with a place to get lunch or a place to go shopping. But what I learned and my whole team learned over the course of, of talk, talking to the community and, and understanding the market better is that unfortunately in Southern Dallas, there is not a type of amenity that isn't lacking. So now we're defining amenity as retail and restaurant and medical facilities and office space and class A apartments and family-oriented entertainment and outdoor space and apartments and hotels. There's a lot of things that are needed and there's a lot of things that are desired. And that's actually played to our strength because over the course of the last seven years, retail has gone more and more and more online. And there's no way we could refill a mall with retail stores. I don't care where you are. And so now we're able to convert a lot of those buildings into those other amenities. So it it has evolved, but the sort of underlying philosophy really has never changed. And that is, this is a community that desires, deserves, and can afford high quality amenities, and we're going to provide them, and then they are going to patronize those amenities. But you started that discussion. You started that line of thinking just now with a focus on respect and value of the individual in the community. In other words, you didn't start with their socioeconomic or demographic profile. You started with respect and value of the human. And that to me was different. That, That sends a different message. It's true. And look, Redbird happens to be a community that has quite a bit of purchasing power. And in the surrounding areas, you know, there there are $500,000 homes, you know, two miles from from Redbird. So, um, but but even if we were doing this sort of development in, uh, you know, in Fair Park, which has much, much different demographics and is significantly uh, poorer community, there's still a way to provide amenities in a way that is respectful and uh, sort of acknowledges the human dignity of the people using those amenities. And, uh, and I don't think that's out. done enough. And, and this is where I'm calling you out. I think that's, you know, I gotta, I'm telling you, that makes you different. Well, it, it, it may, but, but, but it's also good business because yeah. people want to patronize businesses that, that, that make them feel good. When you go to a restaurant, if it has a crappy decor, you don't want to be there. Neither exactly. does anyone else. Well, and this kind of goes back to this. There's a, there are two flavors of investing that have gotten a lot of traction in the last 30 or so years. One is the broadly described conscious capitalism. And the other is impact investing. Um, and I think you kind of, you can make a claim to either one of those, but I, 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 the words you're using, I think are important. And I think it, it's, in, it's important for me to draw that out for you and acknowledge it, because I think it needs to be uh, more frequent, more familiar in, in the communities that we're all trying to do work in. Because I think it's, it's, especially, you know, you and I are two white guys talking about this problem and the largely, African-American community, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you, yeah. have to, you have to approach this differently. That, that's right. And, and look, the, the only place where I, where, where the, the only reason why I'm being uh, at all argumentative is because I think it is a false narrative to say, and I'm not saying you're saying this, but many do, that in order to have, in, in order to make an impact investment, that, that there's an implied sacrifice of returns. Right. And I don't believe that's the case. I believe that you can make just as good returns, if not better, by, uh, by doing things differently. Because ultimately, the environment that you create for people will be more used, more loved, more valued, um, you will have 
fewer problems. Um, people will take pride in, in that amenity and want to protect it. Um, it just, it, it starts a virtuous cycle instead of a vicious cycle. And ultimately the property is going to be worth more money and you will make more money by taking this more positive route. That's the whole investment thesis of Redbird. Well, and the idea is that you're rewarded because you've done that, right? I mean, that, that... you're rewarded for the same reason you're rewarded for putting something really great in Preston Center, because right. you've created something that people want right. and they're going to use it. And so when that lease comes up for renewal, you're going to charge more because so which, that which actually, business is thriving. Which actually speaks to another issue. A, an analogous effort has been undertaken at uh, what we used to call Valley View Mall. Mm -hmm. And it, my perception, having been to Redbird very recently, uh, is that you're further along. Oh, I think we are. Yeah. So can you explain the differences or do you have any ideas around the differences? I, I really can't explain it. Um, to me, and I'm sure that uh, the owners of Valley View will be irritated if they hear this podcast, and I mean them no disrespect, but to me, Valley View is a much easier development. It's at the corner of Maine and Maine. I mean, yeah. it's at Preston and LBJ. You don't get more central than Preston and LBJ. And the rents in that area mean that you could knock down the whole mall and build skyscrapers and justify the cost with the rents. So to me, the fact of Valley View, and in fact, when, when, the, uh, when the city of Dallas put together, they put together what they call a barbell tiff, where the Valley View Mall property and the Redbird Mall property are in the same uh, tax increment fi financing district. And they did that so that 10% of the tax increment produced at, at Valley View would flow down to Redbird as a subsidy. They did that so that because they figured Valley View would be developed so fast, it would actually create a pool of money at, the, at Redbird to incentivize a developer to buy Redbird and redevelop it. And that hasn't happened. I hope it will at some point. But it hasn't happened yet, and I, I can't for the life of me figure out why. I think, I think that there are some issues because there's a lot of different owners of different pieces of it, and they haven't found a way to work together. Uh, they, haven't, they haven't been able to pull off a deal with the city. I don't really get it. But to me, the only thing that Valley View and Redbird have in common is that they're both 1970s-era malls. Uh, with a Sanger Harris that has the same mosaic uh, tile mosaic, but in terms of the, in terms of 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 the, the obstacles to development, nobody is going to think twice about putting a high quality amenity at Preston and LBJ. Well, and and just for those who are watching this podcast who are, live outside of Dallas, uh, LBJ is the the beltway, essentially the ring road that goes around central Dallas, uh, downtown Dallas. And it's at roughly 12 to 15 miles uh, due north, or the, the Preston LBJ intersection is about 12 to 15 miles due north of downtown Dallas. And uh, you're about 11 to 12 miles due south of downtown Dallas. Is that about right? Yeah. And we're also on the LBJ loop. We're just at the exactly, southern end of it. Almost exactly due south. So it's an interesting study in what seems to be working and what seems not to be working. And I think, you know, one of the things you mentioned earlier just now is uh, this notion that you, there are so many amenities that are needed in the area that, you know, pretty much anything works. I, I don't want to underemphasize that right now. And I was down there, of course, for the CD Roman naming. And then you've got Children's down there and you've got UG Southwestern down there. Talk a little bit about how you started having a vision around bringing healthcare uh, facilities down there and, and what that journey was like. The, the need for healthcare in the, in the area was obvious. 
or became obvious quickly. I mean, if you think about the number of hospitals that are in North Dallas, you got Medical City, THR, Baylor, Parkland, Presby, excuse me, Parkland, Children's, UT Southwestern. In Southern Dallas, you've got one hospital, Methodist. That's it in the whole city. Uh, and Southern Dallas is, is, is larger physically than North Dallas and has uh, about uh, 40% of the whole population and North Dallas has 60. So it, it's, it's shocking. And the, and the health outcomes, I mean, there's a zip code in Southern Dallas, 75215, which is uh, South Dallas Fair Park, where the life expectancy is 24 years less than 75205, which is Highland Park. That's crazy. Yeah, 90 that's versus 66. Unbelievably unacceptable. And that was, you know, Commissioner John Wally Price, who, who made some remarks at that uh, presentation at CB Roman, was uh, pointed that out. The other thing he pointed out that I thought was astonishing, which also feeds in the need to have healthcare at River or another location down there, was the, the transportation constraint. Mm -hmm. He said that 43% of the people living in Southern Dallas are transportation constrained. Uh, and I, I had a friend of mine tell me that she was in school, was a daughter of a friend, and she said she was given a, a, uh, an assignment. They dropped her class off at a school at DIS and uh, one of the DISD schools in Southern Dallas, and they gave her the following task. Go get a copy of today's New York Times. Yeah, I've heard this. Transportation. Yep. It was unbelievable. It took them, what, two hours, something like that, each way. It was just ridiculous. Crazy. And the so, thing that, one of the things I mentioned to Commissioner Price and to Commissioner Koch, who are two of our five county commissioners in Dallas, is that you know if you're trying to get to Parkland for a doctor's appointment and you miss the bus for one reason or another, you, it could be two hours each way. And that's not a good thing because especially if you're an hourly wage earner, that means you've lost a day's pay for what's likely to be a six minute visit with a doctor. Uh, that's just completely unacceptable. Yeah. So, so the need was, was, was obvious. Yes. I think the two challenges were um, convincing the medical facilities, not Parkland because it's the County hospital, but, but more UT Southwestern and children's convincing them that they could open up a facility in this community and and not have it be a cash drain. You know, they're nonprofit, but they've got to they've got to support themselves too. But but the stereotypes of the area are such that they I think they at first assumed that everybody there was either uninsured or on Medicaid. And that's true just not the case. Yeah. So when they did the work, they realized it could it would work. And then the last thing was just convincing that or having the idea and then convincing them that it would be a great idea for them to open up a clinic in an old Sears building. And, and that idea came from, from a guy who, uh, who worked on the project at the beginning named Frank Mialopoulos. Uh, he had, he's a real estate developer and he had uh, converted most of a mall in Nashville into a Vanderbilt medical center uh, facility, 500,000 square feet. And so he basically said, you know, this is a great use for a, for a big building. It converts beautifully into medical clinics. And so, um, and so that's where, that's where the idea came from. And then we had to convince the medical facilities of those two things. One is that, that, that they could make a profit there or break even. And two was, I know it doesn't look like it, but this Sears building is going to be a absolutely spectacular state-of-the-art medical facility, which it now is. I, yeah, I, I can affirm that. I've, having been there, it's just, it is fantastic. You guys, you have done a, re, a really nice job, as, as have your your architects and, and everybody else involved. Thank you. Um, what, what do you see as ongoing challenges? I mean, that are that are next to the to the next phases of your development coming down the pipe. I mean, you're at a certain place right now. I know you have an, a vision for more things to occur on the campus. What do you see as the challenges associated with getting to the next stage, or are there is just time and money? Um, I, I would say there are two challenges. One is one uh, it would be a challenge irrespective of 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 the environment, and one is particular to the environment we're in. 
So the the one that's particular to the environment we're we're in is just we're in an inflationary environment and a high interest rate environment, and the two of those things together is a nightmare because um, you know rents aren't necessarily coming up, but construction costs and costs of build and costs of financing are way up, and so deals don't make sense. So I think we'll probably be taking a pause for a while. Uh, and until until something changes, either the rents come up or the interest rates come down or the construction costs come back down, um, b- because right now deals just don't pencil. That's that's the that's the 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 environmental issue. The 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 other big issue that remains is the issue that's really been from day one, which is that you providers of high quality amenities either companies that, that that need office space or retailers or restaurateurs, there is an incredible skepticism about the idea that a predominantly African-American community um, is the right place for them to put their amenity. We get a lot of, mm, I don't think that's our demographic. Or, oh, you know, there's so much crime there, our security costs would be too high, it would ruin our margins. Or I don't really think most of our employees want to drive there. It, it's, it's those sorts of, you know, of comments that, that uh, reveal a bias. I'm sure they're all great people, but we have all absorbed into our system biases that society has sort of drilled into our heads and and it's very hard for people to overcome them and so even 7 years in even with all the progress we've made even with all the beautiful renovations even with you know an incredibly high high performing Starbucks you know on the property and a beautiful UT Southwestern facility we still get the same objections and you know those are very entrenched um, perceptions that people have about this community, and it's very hard to dislodge them. Do you anticipate a a dart rail stop there? I don't think there's anyone, uh, anything being planned. Uh, I would love there to be a dart rail stop. Uh, Those things are decades in the planning, uh, and so that really will be intergenerational. How far are you from the nearest dirt rail stop? Uh, we are about five miles from UNT Dallas, um, just straight across Camp Wisdom. And they have improved the bus route from UNT Dallas to Redbird. Uh, and I believe there's another one a couple miles away, um, but, but not, not not particularly close. Yeah. So. A a good question. This perhaps because of the industry that that I'm in and, and you are in. You know, my first my, the first thing that leaves my mind is how many financial services firms are down there? How many PE firms or hedge funds? And you know, why wouldn't you put a giant hedge fund if not? You know, put a giant hedge fund down there. Move uh, you know Highland Capital down there. Not to get Don Darrow upset with me, but. Uh, you know, one of the big funds or big, big platforms. I mean, look, the primary reason is because I think that most of the people who work at those funds don't live in Southern Dallas. Hedge funds are not known for being a particularly diverse industry. No. Um, and so, I mean, I'd love it, but that'd be a pretty hard sell. What I'm going for is, hey, uh, JP Morgan or AT&T or Bank of America or Comerica uh, or Toyota or American Airlines or Southwest Airlines or Kimberly Clark, why don't you put some of your back office here? Well, that, that's what I was leading to. You know, Goldman is putting, you know, two, they're putting 5,000 people in the central Dallas, right, you know, right next to the victory. Oh, they're, they're on the list. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and I'm not expecting the C-suite. In 10 years, maybe the C-suite will be coming there. There is a there is a workforce around Redbird that is highly educated, um, and uh, within a twenty minute drive, you've got 
Waxahachie, Red Oak, Cedar Hill, Duncanville, DeSoto, Lancaster, Grand Prairie, Arlington, and Oak Cliff. And there are people who live in all those communities that could easily work at the legal department, the IT department, the accounting department, the HR department, the finance department of all of these major companies. And that's really what we're looking for. So a necessary corollary to that is infrastructure. Um, and by that, I'm not talking about necessarily roads and, and water and other utilities. I'm talking about broadband. Do you have good fiber, you know, into the facility? And oh, absolutely. Could you yeah, put a I data mean, center there? I, I don't want a data center there. Um, I, I'm trying to populate the site with people and data centers employ about like 10 people. Yeah. Um, so it's that that that's you know that might be a use for the land, but it's not my use for the land because we're trying to create a synergistic community where the people who work there during lunch get hungry and want to go to a restaurant, right? Um, and therefore, restaurants will have a lunch business and a dinner business, and so there can be places for people to go on date night in the area. Now, my reference to a data center was just a comment on the on the the throughput of the bandwidth. That's all. Oh, we've got an AT&T fiber right, right to our building. Okay. Um, yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no infrastructure limitations. I mean, we have a, a 90,000 square foot, you know, state-of-the-art call center at the mall. Uh, they're not doing that without, you know, without two different sources of data. They can't go down. Right. UT Southwestern can't go down. Parkland can, can't access any of their patient data. So yeah, no, there, there's, there's no lack of, uh, of that sort of, of infrastructure. Excellent. Now, the other thing that you and I uh, discussed at one point in the past was that in Southern, that Southern Dallas has something like 5% of the office space in Dallas County. Is that, did I remember that correctly? Yeah, I don't have the exact numbers, but it's something like five to 10% of the office space in the city of Dallas is south of Interstate 30, which for those of you not from Dallas is the 50-yard line of Dallas, which means 90 to 95% is north. And if you drive down I-35, you know, that proves it out. There are no office buildings except for B of A Tower. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the problems with Southern Dallas is that there's nowhere to work. And so there's no daytime traffic and daytime traffic is what makes retail and restaurants viable. So are you reaching out to the CEOs and, and other executives in, in the, like the IT community or some of the, uh, some of the back office functions that could be located down there? We are absolutely. And we have been for seven years and you know, everyone has, different requirements. Many companies are trying to consolidate. Many of their company companies have moved way up north. But but we'll, you know, we're, we're so we're chipping away at it. Um, at the end of the day, the company that does this has to believe that they can attract the right workforce in the in that location. And in order for them to believe that they can attract the right work, workforce, they have to overcome their entrenched assumptions about this community. And I get back to the kind of, you know, biases that we all have absorbed. Um, I had one company years ago say to me, I don't really want to come here because half my employees live north and they don't want to drive south in the morning. And I said, yeah, but that means the other half of your employees live south and <laughs> they don't want to drive north. Oh, I never thought of that. So there's just, you know, there, there's a lot of issues. And then there's, there, there's the other issue that so many people have moved really far north and are commuting from Frisco, it, Southern Dallas does become very far. And so that's why we also have to get more people living in the community. Yeah. Not that there's not enough people there now, but if we're going to grow, we've got all, we, we, we've got to grow in every, in every sense. Yes. And that's, I think, uh, an important message. You know, we need to, 
the, Charles Murray wrote a great book around this. I don't know if you read it. It, it was a longitudinal study of America from 1960 to 2010. And he talked about how our neighborhoods had fundamentally changed. And you know, it wasn't uncommon, wasn't uncommon in the past where people of different socioeconomic backgrounds and, and current states would be living with one another on the same block. They may vacation in different places, but you know, it wasn't such a disparity. And now we have almost a tribal uh, view of where we want to live. And we tend to live with people who look and, and are educated just like us and to the exclusion of everybody else. And, and that leads to a homogeneity that I think leads to a myopia around uh, an empathy for, and, or, and a lack of empathy for, uh, for those who aren't in the same circumstance. Uh, it, it absolutely does. And the thing is that there are plenty of neighborhoods near Redbird where the education level is exactly the same as the people who live or live in Frisco. Yeah. Um, but it's not even under consideration to live there for some people, for, for most people. What's been the biggest surprise or the biggest learning that you've had uh, through the course of this? I'm a, I'm a Jewish kid from Brooklyn, right? I was raised in the Democratic Party. What is it about Brooklyn? I want to know what it is about Brooklyn. It's like every, you know, successful person, author and writer and musician. Uh, you know, I think Paul Simon came from Brooklyn. He comes to mind. What is it about Brooklyn? Barbara Streisand? Yeah. Um, I don't know what it is about Brooklyn. I, lo I love being from there. But, you know, I, I always have considered myself to be very open minded and very uh, understanding of um you know, of, of the role of, of racism in our society. But I had no idea. The, the, I've gotten a very close look, as close as I'll ever get, being white. Assumptions about race pervade every aspect of life. And um, I've just seen it up close and personal. Things like that comment I talked about, you know, I never thought about the, 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 the commuting convenience of the people who live in Southern Dallas. It's like the ignoring of the, of the conveniences and comforts of, of, of uh, African-American people, um, the, the, the devaluing of their dignity, um, it really is pervasive. And, and I really, I am absolutely a hundred percent not saying that the world is full of virulent racists. I think most people are completely unaware of the assumptions behind their thoughts and that they don't have a negative or an unkind thought about anyone, but we've just all been taught, um, sort of subconsciously, and it really does pervade every aspect of life. And it, it's given me, I think, a tremendous understanding of the frustrations that many African-Americans feel with, you know, with, with society as it is today. It's very frustrating. I'll give you a perfect example. One of my African-American friends once said to me, and it's a common saying, we have to be twice as good to get half the credit. I never really understood what that meant, but I get asked all the time, well, how safe is it at Redbird? How safe is it? Is it safe? Do you feel in danger there? And we have a very, I mean, knock on wood, we have a very, very safe development. We've had, no, there's been no major crimes in the seven years I've been there. And certainly no violent crimes. At the shops at Park Lane in North Dallas, there was a murder in the parking garage a couple of years ago. No one cared. Everyone still goes to the shops at Park Lane. The North Park parking lot is the highest crime rate in the city of Dallas. No one cares. If there were a murder at Redbird, no one would ever go there again. And it's like we're held to a completely different standard. And 
it made me understand the we have to be twice as good to get half the credit. We can't afford to have any crime or it will confirmation bias will kick in and it will confirm the preconceived, you know, assumption. And so that that is the most I mean, that that's really what I, I, I think I have a, a much better insight into the perspective and frustrations that African-Americans feel in this in this city and in this country. If, you, if I were to impose upon you for a call to action to say, what can people do to to help or to be an active participant in change? What would you say? Well, the first thing I think is to is to challenge yourself. Just challenge your assumptions. The next the next time you find yourself feeling very very nervous walking to the fair from the parking lot, just challenge yourself about why you feel so nervous. Why why do you feel so nervous? It's broad daylight, there's a million people around. You know, so so challenge your assumptions, look within. Everybody has biases. I've got them. A hundred percent. You can't live in this country. You can't live in this world and not have some kind of bias. We're, we're all human beings, but, but you have to challenge them. The, the next thing I would say is get out of your bubble. Get out of your bubble. Go to another part of the city and interact with people. And if you're in a position to offer opportunities to people who don't usually get a lot of opportunities, do it. And maybe change your perspective on, like I have this whole conversation with a friend about whether, um, you know, whether colleges have, um, you know, dumbed down qualification, what, what it means to be qualified to go to a certain, to a, to a great college. And what I've said is, I don't think they've dumbed it down but just because your kid speaks three languages because they got to spend every summer in France or Spain, that doesn't make them more qualified than the kid that had to work jobs every summer in order to put food on his family's table. That kid may be more qualified, even though he doesn't speak as many languages because of his grit, stick to tenacity, perseverance. I think we have to change our perspective on on what qualifications mean mean and look at the life circumstances that people have grown up with and and challenges they've overcome. So that's that's a a good way to to wrap things up because it really says look inside yourself first uh, and 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 challenge yourself before you try and do anything else. Uh, Peter, it's been an absolute joy visiting with you. I'm so I'm so grateful for this opportunity and for you, quite honestly. Um, and just to my, my viewers and our viewers today, uh, as always, if you enjoy this content, please like, share, and subscribe. We look forward to seeing you at the next episode. Thank you so much. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.